This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Stephanie Butnick, and I am joined by my two co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibovitz. Shalom to you. And I see in here TKTK Joshua Molina. <laughs> that is journalism speak for fill this in at some point. So welcome, Josh. <laughs> I know. I, I looked it up. I was excited that I, I, I was hoping it would be something more exciting than I'll figure it out later. And the man who is taking the blood bank by storm. Exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm giving today. I feel like you don't talk about that enough. I know we make you talk about it every few episodes, but like you're you're big on the blood donation circuit. As soon as we're done, I'm heading over to give platelets. Where is your blood donation team on the Red Cross list? Ah, yes, my Red Cross blood donation team. And if you have, as a Jewish podcast, if you have have trouble or problems with the International Red Cross. This is the American Red Cross. I have a <laughs> blood donation team. You have to have them do it there. You can't bring it in a bucket. The team and now out of 64,000 teams in the United States, across the United States, is in 32nd place. Wow. And you've up from 36, which was an auspicious place to be. My fellow teammates are doing the heavy lifting. <laughs> I give as often as possible, but there are people on my team who have given gallons and gallons. If you join my team, which is called Josh Molina is Nice, and you can do so through the Red Cross Blood app, your donations will go towards our team total. And again, out of 64,000 teams, we're ranked 32nd in the nation right now. That is amazing. I want I want to get you to 18th. If we can get to 18th, I'd be willing to stop just so we can stay at Chav. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, that's it. We're out. Yeah. This reminds me of my, uh, my favorite Mitch Hedberg joke. Uh, I went to a doctor. All he did was draw blood. Don't go see Dr. Acula. <laughs> brilliant freaking show. We have a whole show before Joshua Molina can leave to give blood again. Today on the show, we're talking to Ted Deutsch, former U.S. congressman and current CEO of the American Jewish Committee. He joins us to talk about the organization's new report on the state of anti-Semitism in America. Spoiler alert, it's not great. <laughs> TLDR, not looking good. Actually, an anti-Semitism, it's alive and well. It's thriving. <laughs> I mean, honestly, what would be our incentive to solve it at this point. How many organizations do we lose if no one hates us? <laughs> what podcast would we even have? We also share a story that our producer Quinn Waller reported here in New York City about a Hebrew language charter school in South Brooklyn with some surprising students. And as a bonus, Stephanie checked in with my man, rapper Kosha Dills, about what he's up to right now. And not only does it involve music, but he also dipped his toes into our beautifully Jewish knit-along which because he's a braver man than I am. And we've got a small sample of that. But first, before we get to all of that, what's what's new with you guys? I leave tomorrow for uh, Orlando, Florida, not for Disney World, but for the uh, BBYO, B'nai B'rith Youth Organization's 100th International Conference. I'm very excited to go celebrate Shabbos with them, hang out with the young, energized Jews. Josh and Melina, how do you feel about the young? How do I feel about the young? Yeah. The young people? Children are our future. What counts as young? I have, my children are 25 and 21. Yeah. I'm a big fan of them. Specifically, but of the whole genre of young people. The whole these genre days. of young people. If I may paint with a broad brush, I think, I, yes, I like young people. Young people who's, unlike me, whose hope and idealism have not yet been extinguished. I like being around that energy for nostalgia's sake. Yes, I love that. Yeah, I feel there's something kind of off generationally. I know it's not their fault because it's like it was our fault actually educate them into something better. I really think the internet did something. I'm going to let my very gray beard flow here. But the absolute lack of complete historical context is not something that I think my generation had. I think we understood like time periods We're like, oh, this happened and then this happened and then this happened. I think right now, I think we've had this conversation maybe once or twice in the show, but it just like strikes me every time I talk to young people like, oh, so... The Prophet Muhammad and the Beatles, like 20 years apart, right? Like there's absolutely no knowledge because everything you consume just gets it to you from like a torrent on TikTok or whatever. I think what you're trying to say is get off my lawn. I'm trying to say get off my lawn, get off the internet and read a book. Although I have to say our friend Susie Weiss had a hilarious Valentine's Day piece on the free press in which she complained about how hard it was to meet people on the apps. And she's like, and don't tell me to like put down my phone and like go do something we like volunteer. That's just insane. Don't tell me to live in the real world. Be realistic. I just have to say, I think this is why Josh got invited to the BBYO conference and you did not, Leo. <laughs> I think that's a great <laughs> But there's great... always next year. Well said. <laughs> 
I have something about the young, the young Jews, but about the very young Jews. My daughter, Edith, I subscribed her to PJ Library, who has been a sponsor of the show. I didn't use the unorthodox code, so I didn't help us at all. But I did. <laughs> she is a subscriber to PJ Library and you get a book every so often. A lot of our listeners know what I'm talking about. A lot of our listeners have no idea what I'm talking about. We recently got the best PJ Library book I have ever received. And I just need to talk about it because it's the most delightful book. We read it every night. It's called I Can Help. It's not a Jewish book. It's not about a holiday. It's not about like some holiday you didn't know was a holiday, but then you learn about it because you get the book from PJ Library. But it's called I Can Help. And it's about this little ducky. And he gets lost. And he's like, I'm lost. And then there's like a monkey up in a tree. And he goes, I can help. And he like sees the family because he's up in the tree. And then the monkey's like, the branch starts breaking. He's like, "Uh uh-oh, the branch is breaking. And there's a giraffe. And the giraffe's like, I can help. And he like helps him up. And then the giraffe is hungry. So like someone else helps him. And it's like this beautiful story where everyone helps each other along the way. And then the best part is that it ends with like an elephant being like, I'm thirsty. And then the duck comes back. And the duck is like, here, I can lead you to water. And so he leads him to water and to the mommy elephant. And the very last page is the International Red Cross. And they're like, we actually can't help. We're really sorry. We would, but we're totally ineffectual. No, don't ruin this. This is a beautiful book. We can't deliver your medicine to you, ducky. But here's the punchline. Finally, after the duck helps the elephant, the duck goes, "Uh uh-oh, I'm lost again, which I find very funny. And then like, there's a whole, the next page is a whole bunch of animals being like, we can help. And so like what we do Uh. is we read it and I say, I can, and Edith goes, help, I can help. And like, I love it for this message for some reason. I don't know why I needed this book in this moment, but I feel like there are other parents of young children out there who have also just got, we must all be on the same PJ cycle. And so like other people have gotten this book. I want to start the I Can Help Hive. I love this book so much. It just like, it makes me so happy. Maybe I just, I needed a children's book to like get me out of my malaise. You know what? I'm going to send you both copies of I Can Help. I think it'll be beautiful. It'll be the official book of the pod. Of the Jews, oh yeah. N O T J news of the Jews. So let's get to some news of the Jews. Our Davos correspondent, Liel, please take it away. So this is from Switzerland, which is not Belgium, but it's pretty close. This is great. First of all, it already triggered me based on my long-held belief that Jews absolutely have no business skiing unless they're fleeing the Nazis. Headline, Swiss police probe hotel ski rental ban for Jewish guests. This week, the hotel restaurant at the Pischer mountain station in Davos. It's not Pischer? It's not pronounced Pischer? The umlaut may, may have uh, been uh, misplaced. Pischer. In Davos, uh, made international headlines after it posted a poorly worded sign in Hebrew indicating that it would no longer rent out sledges and skis to Jewish guests. Of course, showrunner Courtney Hazlett had to explain to us what sledges were. I did not bother clicking on her link. I have no need to know anything whatsoever about skis, but I did see the so-called poorly worded sign. And I have to tell you, the sign is not poorly worded at all. I'm going to read it in Hebrew and then do a direct translation. It says, Following all kinds of events, very annoying events, including the stealing of a sled, we no longer rent out equipment to our Jewish brothers. Please and thank you for the understanding. This is just wonderful. This is exactly the kind of a note that like a very polite Swiss person would write. It was just too annoying to rent to our Jewish brothers. What happened here? Is this actually like the Yehudis did stuff to the sleds? They ruined them? I will go straight to the unimprovably named Rudi Pifna, <laughs> spelt with, I'm not joking. I think there's like seven P's and F's in, in this man's <laughs> last name. He's the owner of the Pisha Mountain Station restaurant. Pisha. We no longer want to bear the risk that a guest will cause a serious accident at some point and hold us accountable to it. Because apparently it was about, quote unquote, safety concern and the hassle when guests rent equipment and sneakers and then abandon sledges on slopes. <laughs> so apparently the Jews were not following the rules and therefore the Jews will no longer get the ski equipment, which I'm pretty sure is how, how Nuremberg began. It's like, <laughs> let's, let's, let's test it out. First of all, let's not give them skis. 
Then we could take away their teaching jobs. And finally, you know. First they came for the sledges and then for the hammers. I love this idea, um, hold us accountable for it. It's like these very litigious guests. Like we're hitting all the bad stereotypes. <laughs> like I don't want these shasty Jews to so, come in. Uh, so think about the Jews is that they tend to litigate. We do not need any of this. Melina, have you ever been to Davos? Have you ever been to Switzerland? No, I've not. I do enjoy skiing, but I don't I, I don't have enough. I can't argue. By the way, with sledges are actual sleds. It's been sleds. a while anyway. Yeah. Sledges are sleds. They're not skis. They're skis with like a thing on top. It's like a toboggan. We could basically just say like, look, how about rent out to Jews? And like, if something happens, you could always take some of the uh, money that you still have from what you stole from the Jews who kept it there during the Holocaust and then uh, died because you're totally complacent. You know, although I do love the Swiss. The Swiss love cheese and they love guns. And how can you not love that? Cheese and guns. That's your next your next children's book. Our next story comes to us from the music industry. The headline, Ozzy Osbourne refuses to let, quote, anti-Semite Kanye West sample Black Sabbath song. Ozzy Osbourne has revealed that he refused to let Kanye West sample a live version of Black Sabbath's Iron Man because the rapper is, quote, an anti-Semite and has caused untold heartache to many. You're here. However, that apparently didn't stop Wes from featuring the sample at his album listening party. Now he's mad. Ozzy's mad. Ozzy is mad, and it turns out you don't mess with Ozzy. By the way, totally, totally forbranged. If Ozzy Osbourne challenges and questions your mental state, (laughs) Ozzy is the person who's like, no, I'm responsible. I can't let myself be associated with that. I bit the head of a bat. But I can't be associated with that guy. I know. It's funny. It's like if, you, if you're too far for Ozzy Osbourne, you've done something wrong. I did not realize Sharon Osbourne, his wife, is Jewish. Of course. Oh, yes. Her quote is that Kanye West effed with the wrong Jew. And I think she's referring to herself there. And I love this. God bless her. She's been very vocal about Roger Waters' anti-Semitism as well. She doesn't put up with it. See, this is another thing that the Josh and Melina and myself are divided on. I understand. I just have endless, endless patience for Kanye. Like, honestly, at this point, I don't even know what Kanye could do that I'd be like, oh, you know, screw that guy. It's just like, at this point, just just builds up to the to the mystique. I feel the same way about Bell Gibson, though. So maybe you're just, it's just... Now you're just trolling maybe, him, Leo. Maybe I'm the <laughs> one who needs, who needs examining. How do you feel about the Jews? How do you feel about the Jews? <laughs> Some of my best friends, yeah. Could take him or leave him. I love these Jewish celebrities that I didn't necessarily always knew were Jewish, or even just celebrities generally who are like coming out of the woodwork to be like, no, no, no. This is bad. Like, F you, Kanye. Like, I think that it's so nice. And maybe the bar is so low that we're like, oh, my God, someone defended us against Kanye West. Like, thank God. But we're missing the, the other side of the picture, I think. is like, don't, don't we prefer our anti-Semites, like, old school? Wouldn't we rather be like, yeah, no, I just, I just don't like Jews. Yeah, that is all we needed to hear. That's fine. But then does he have to use the music? He has to, he like gets to take the music? I don't think oh, so. Oh, no, that, that, was, that was totally the right move. No, no, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that I totally support. And I don't know how Ozzy Osbourne would feel about this, but our next story comes to us from the Middle East. Here's a headline from the Jerusalem Post. Moroccan hash dealers boycott Israeli drug smugglers in support of Gaza. I'm sorry, Stephanie, did you just imply that Ozzy Osbourne uses or used to use drugs? I was just saying that I don't know what Ozzy Osbourne would say about this next that's story. slanderous. I, I don't think he ever did. I don't know what he would say about the first story. I don't know what he'd say about the last story. You just don't know what he would say in general because he's completely incomprehensible when he speaks. You just don't know what he says. But it turns out what he's saying is like calling out anti-Semites and I'll, you know. So uh, what's up with the Moroccan hash dealers? Guys, I don't know if you know this, but hashish dealers in Morocco have stopped supplying Israeli smugglers with hashish due to the ongoing war in Gaza. The report stated that the hashish industry has already lost tens of millions of shekels since their boycott began. Moroccan hash is sought after worldwide as a high quality premium product with estimates putting the trade's yearly value in the billions, making it one of Morocco's They're most valuable industries. They're not a sponsor industries. this week. But not this week. No. And neither is PJ Library. The product, like PJ Library, their, their product is good. <laughs> the product is high quality. It's basically one of Morocco's most valuable industries after tourism and whatever phosphate exports are. The majority of hashish is sold from Morocco to dealers in Europe. And apparently only a few hundred kilograms of Moroccan hashish reach Israel. However, there's a high demand for it. And now everyone's just like freaking out. This has always been the... <laughs> I think it's always been my highest hope for peace in the Middle East because I've, I've seen during previous skirmishes in Gaza and Lebanon what happens when drug supplies stop reaching, you know, the, the Tel Aviv, Bohemia, how very quickly people are like, okay, look, we'll negotiate whatever they want. Just 
you, you just can't do this to us. These, these are the people who would bring peace to the Middle East is what I'm saying. Somewhere in Startup Nation, a budding Walter White right. is saying, you know what? We do not need the Moroccans. We are the ones who knock. We'll make our own labs, grow and plant. One door closes, another opens. That's right. I guess it's funny because like you would think that, okay, so if the Israeli smugglers are losing money because they're not selling, aren't, like is Morocco selling to other people Must instead? Must be hitting Morocco when, in the yeah, wallet too. Yeah. Yeah, because they said, look at this. The price of a kilogram of Moroccan hash is 300,000 shekels in Israel, which is like, what, $80,000, $90,000 for a kilo. That's kind of great. So basically, that's like two pounds of hashish goes for, what did you say, $80,000? That's insane. $90,000, yeah. $90,000, yikes. Okay, well, maybe we should start doing something else. Maybe we could start vaping, guys, in Israel. I know you have a lot going on over there, but we'll try to improvise. And finally, to cap up this great week, very briefly, there's no no real reason to talk about the story, but it's a headline that was written, I believe, directly just for my benefit. Hamas is operating in Belgium, but we can't do anything about it, said Member of Parliament Michael Freilich from the opposition new Flemish Alliance Party. It's nothing at all like the old Flemish Alliance Party. He recounted his astonishment at the response of Justice Minister Paul van Tichelt, who openly admitted as a response to his inquiry that there are indeed groups who operate in Belgium on the account of Hamas lobbying, fundraising for Hamas. You know, I, I uh, am actually surprised to hear this. I would have thought that Hamas... No, I have no good joke to make here. Uh, so yeah, Belgium, congratulations to you for hitting another low on your quest to keep the title of the worst country in the world. They were starting to feel threatened by Switzerland. <laughs> Deutsch is the CEO of the American Jewish Committee and a former U.S. congressman, and he joins us to talk about the AJC's newly released report on the state of anti-Semitism in America. Ted Deutsch, welcome to Unorthodox. Thanks so much. Really great to be with you. So I know you've like been in Congress and do all this important stuff, but you were preceded in being on this show by your daughter. Oh, I've been reminded of that by everyone in my family. And in fact, most of our friends who follow (laughs) Gabby's career much more closely than they follow mine. Your daughter, Gabby Deutsch, who's a writer at Jewish Insider, came on to talk about this amazing story she had reported out. So I think you're the first father-daughter duo to be on the show. So I really like that for you guys. It's so exciting. I wish we could do it together. Next time. I don't know if she wishes that, but I think that would be great. <laughs> what Stephanie's basically saying is that you're a, a Nepo daddy, which is okay. <laughs> right. Uh, whatever it takes, Leah, whatever it takes. <laughs> so um, you join us with a brand new report about the state of anti-Semitism from the AJC. And surely you're here to tell us that we have solved this problem. I wish that I could tell you that. I wish that I could tell you that the data that we see in this report, as shocking as it is, is surprising, but it isn't. I think we all know how we're feeling, and this report just confirms that in black and white, and it's it's really troubling, and there's a whole lot that we need to do to address it. Do you want to give us the, uh, the lowlights, such as it were? Sure. There are a few that jump out first. For anyone in the Jewish community who's aware of what happened on October 7th, they are aware of the horrific Hamas attack, nearly 80% are living in fear. They're more fearful than they've ever been about being Jews in America. Then you look at the data about the direction we're headed, 63%, almost two-thirds of American Jews believe that their status, that our status in the United States of America is less secure today than it was a year ago. And almost half of all American Jews reported changing their behavior at least once out of fear of anti-Semitism. That is what they wore, where they went, what they posted, all of it to try to hide who they are as Jews because of the threats that they feel they're facing. These are stunning numbers 
And it should spur us all to take action and to enlist the support of our friends and allies to do the same. This is a Jewish podcast. We'll get to action and friends and allies in a second. I, I want to linger on the enemies, if you don't mind. <laughs> We're not, not nearly done with them. Uh, you wrote a beautiful piece, I think around the 100-day mark after October 7th, in which you uh, remind us, citing a famous Irish historian, Conor Cruz O'Brien, I believe, who said, anti-Semitism is a very light sleeper. And you wrote this piece that basically said, hey, it feels like all those uh, Hamas supporters next door all yeah. the people who all of a sudden march in the streets and say horrendous things and block roads and hospitals, et cetera. Those are not new anti-Semites. Those are just anti-Semites who are napping. Say more about this. How are we to go about life when all of a sudden it feels everyone around us or a substantial portion of people around us are haters? We talk a lot about 10-7. We all work to make sure that people remember what happened on 10-7. But you know what the really jarring date was obviously the violent attack that we felt on the 7th, which is the lowest moment that most of us can recall. But it was so jarring when the next day on 10-8, this is while Israel was still in shock, while the global Jewish community was still in shock and trying to figure out what happened and understanding just how interlinked we are with Israel and how very much at risk we felt. With all of that happening, before Israel sent one soldier into Gaza to defend the people of Israel, the anti-Semites were marching in the streets, praising the terror attacks against Israel. That was the moment when we realized they're not gone. And the debates that we've been having over all these years about what it really means when people are talking about from the river to the sea and when some of these professors are saying things that are so outrageous, well, the mask came off on October 8th when they were advertising these rallies with images of the paragliders that the terrorists used. That was the moment when we realized, yeah, they're right next door. We know it. There's no longer any question who they are, what they want, what they stand for. And we've got to be in it, all of us, all the time in fighting back against it. I did an event in Long Island last month, and it's a big room full of people. And a woman raised her hand, and she said, you know, before, because this, I think, sums it up. She raised her hand, and she said, before 10-7, she said, I, I was involved in a million activities and lots of philanthropy, and I had so many causes. And she said, since 10-7, I am all Jewish all the time. And when we realize what we're up against— Every single day as a result of this, it, I think, compels all of us who care to be taking that stand against it every single day. I feel like I saw myself in some of this, this data. Almost half of American Jews, 46 percent, have changed their behavior out of fear of anti-Semitism. And I think about that because you are a professional Jew, right? So are we. We work in the Jewish space. We're sort of big, loud Jews. And I think that's super important. But then I'll sort of like get on the subway and I'm like, should I be wearing my Star of David necklace that I talk about all the time? Should I be turning my ring around so people can't see the big Jewish star on it? Like, I think we still all are human. I tell people to be proud. I'm really, really proud. But it's not crazy to be a little bit fearful of the climate that we're in right now. So how do you sort of navigate that yourself and then help others navigate that? It's not crazy. I travel a lot. I have lots of calls to make. And when I'm sitting in the back of an Uber, I think about what I'm saying. Do I want to have the conversation I need to have like this? Because I don't, I don't know what the driver is thinking. In some ways, I'm kind of ashamed to say this, but this is the moment that we live in. I want to be, and I really tried to be, and I'm always proudly Jewish, but I want to be out there. And I want people to know that this is a moment where fear only lets the anti-Semites win. That said, you walk down the street, and there's a huge protest Part of me thinks I'm going to go confront some protesters and point out how little they know and what they really don't appreciate at all about Israel and how they have no idea what they're actually talking about. But we worry about personal safety. And so most times I'm going to decide to, to walk across the street. I mean, these are the kinds of decisions that we're all making. And it's a natural extension from what we've gotten used to at our synagogues. It wasn't that long ago that we were shocked when we visited Europe or saw images from Europe of the police protection outside of synagogues. But 
that's where we are here. And we've just come to accept it because of the threats. I just think we have to work really hard to not normalize this response so that we're always acting, even in small part, out of fear. So I want to ask you about a place where Jews feel even less secure these days than they ever did, which is Congress. You famously, as a member of Congress, were a staunch and ardent supporter and defender of Israel. That didn't always make you the most popular guy in your party. But I think if you ask most Jews before October 7th, they would probably say something like, well, you know, there are probably some people in the Democratic Party who are hard left, who really have a problematic view of Israel. But for the most part, things are okay. Just the other day, we saw Chris Van Hollen, who I believe is the second or third ranked member of the party, saying that Israel committed war crimes in Gaza. And it feels that everything from this to the White House response these last couple of days to the operation in Rafah feels like there's some kind of really disturbing shift in the party. Is this just my paranoid imagination or is there something to it? Well, I would start with the big picture. And the big picture is that the administration's policy continues to be supportive of Israel in terms of providing weapons, in terms of defending Israel at the UN. Those two policies haven't changed. What's so frustrating to me, and I'm not singling anyone out, I was a senior member of the Foreign Affairs Committee for a long time, and I was outraged by the hundreds of thousands of civilians that Assad slaughtered, his own people that Assad slaughtered, or the hundreds of thousands of people who were killed in Yemen, or the hundreds of thousands of people who were killed in Ethiopia. And it always was such a challenge getting people to pay attention outside of our little foreign policy world. And here, at a moment when Israel is doing exactly what we would expect our government to do or what anyone anywhere in the world would expect their government to do, which is to not allow what happened on 10-7 to happen again when the enemy, which Hamas is, this terror group, continues to say it is its goal to do that over and over again and to massacre Jews. In the midst of all of that, the willingness to accept Hamas's word over the word of our democratic ally, to refuse to look at the real data that's coming out of Gaza, the failure to be able to acknowledge, yes, the loss of any civilian life is horrible. And then to ask, well, why is this happening? And why did Hamas invest all of this money building five stories of tunnels below ground that go on for hundreds of kilometers and why do they continue to put their people at risk? And why do they refuse to return the hostages? And why do they refuse to, to lay down their arms so that there are no more civilian casualties? That's what's so frustrating about this moment in Congress. And as disappointing and as frustrating as it is that there are members of the House and Senate who have taken that position, this is a moment when we need everyone else. And we all said this in the days after 10-7 and, and nothing's changed. The need for more clarity today is even more urgent than it was on 10, after 10-7 because more and more people are trying to rewrite what happened even on 10-7. And the place where that moral clarity should come through is in Congress. And too often it isn't. And too often on the far left of the Democratic Party, it is more about hating Israel or, in the worst case, calling for the dismantling of the one Jewish state in the world than it is about concern over human rights or the talking points that really don't apply here, because if they did, we would all be focused on Hamas and defeating Hamas. It is also worth noting that it is possible to question Israel's conduct of military operations in the Gaza Strip without being an anti-Semite or expressing anti-Semitism. Moral clarity is is not such an easy or simple issue, I think, given the state of affairs. Well, there's a difference. The people who were out shutting down museums, screaming at young cancer patients at Sloan Kettering, trying to shut down the tunnel, trying to shut down the airport, calling for the destruction of Israel, that, those aren't efforts to question the actions of the Israelis. No? All I'm saying is that's the easy stuff. 
That's the easy stuff to agree on. Obviously, if you're doing that stuff, you're in the wrong. I, I don't want to paint with so broad a brush that anybody who criticizes or at least questions the situation in Gaza and how Israel is conducting military operations is painted as an anti-Semite. The, the, oh. the far extreme stuff is very easy to point at and say that's no good. And if you're calling for the dismantling. Right, but that, that was kind of the essence of my question, which I think Ted is kind of getting at, which is, I totally get what you're saying, but when I hear someone like Van Holen, which again, up until three months ago, I would have said, hey, you know, moderate center Democrat say, oh, textbook war crimes, which is neither a subtle nor an accurate nor responsible description for a U.S. lawmaker speaking about a particular act that was designed to rescue hostages held by civilians. That is what troubles me. And and so I just I just want to ask again, like, your view, and it's not just the Democratic Party, Lord knows we yeah. have a lot of trouble on the right as well. When you look at these two behemoths, these two parties, on a scale of one to 10, how optimistic are you that we can regain some sense of normalcy and recapture a center here? Can you imagine? Wait, is that a question, by the way, in Talmudic discourse? Like on a scale, one to 10. On a scale of one to 10, let's just cut to the chase here. That is exactly how the rabbis would put it. <laughs> as as Rabbah said to, uh, yeah, the, you know, to Rav Chisda. Uh, look, it's pretty discouraging. And here's why on this issue. Yes, Josh, you know what? Of course, there are civilian casualties in Gaza. And you can be concerned about them. We're all concerned about them. But this line that says either... You're concerned about civilian casualties, and therefore the conclusion to draw is that Israel is committing war crimes. It's wrong and it's unhelpful. What we ought to be able to do, and I don't think it was that long ago where these kinds of conversations could take place, is to actually be able to have a conversation that says, okay, well, there's these images. And by the way, the images are terrible. The fact that these are images that are the only images that are broadcast on lots of people's TikTok feeds all the time without any sense of the broader picture here. That's a concern too. But we ought to be able to say, yes, we mourn the loss of civilian life. And you know what else? We have to remember what happened on 10-7 and we need to figure out what the adequate response is to that. And when you say this is the biggest challenge, I agree with you, Josh. I think we would all agree that it should be easy for us to point to those people marching down the street praising the Hamas terrorists as outside of the mainstream. We all ought to be able to condemn that. But when there are members of Congress whose statements sound closer to that or who may participate in some of those kinds of marches, it makes it really hard to think about how Congress is able to come together. I mean, Liel, I'm I'm confident that support for Israel in Congress is still a, a large majority of Congress. But I, yes, I worry that for some of my friends on the far left, the, the position was that there had to be some really stark critique of Israel for you to be a legitimate progressive. I mean, when I was in Congress, I was, now it's crazy when you think about what's happening now, but the whole progressive except Palestine, which used to be the way they characterize people like me, like when I was in Congress, like good on social security, good on climate, good on gun safety, good on women's rights, but, oh, but he's he, he's too soft for Israel. Well, now, as troubling as that was, now there's this full-on hatred, this call for the dismantling, the, the elimination of Israel. And yeah, that's why I'm really troubled about where this goes in Congress and beyond, but it's why I think we need to work so hard to prevent it from going completely off the rails. So now that this report is out, what should we do? What's something that every Jewish person can take from this? What is something that we all could be incorporating into our daily lives to sort of stem the tide of fear and confusion and just general despair that I think a lot of us are still feeling in the wake of October 7th, but also just in the general climate of America today? To that end, I was also going to ask, a lot of the data, or maybe all the data we've discussed thus far from the report seems to center around our own perception of the situation as far as anti-Semitism and our own security in our country. Is our perception of our situation accurate? From our perspective, it's important to track the level of anti-Semitic incidents, but this is a report on, on how, it's not just about how the Jewish community reacts and is feeling, it's about the community overall 
And I think the answer to the question, Josh, really is reflected in the data that shows that three quarters of, of U.S. adults recognize anti-Semitism as a problem in the United States. So this isn't something that we perceive around us that isn't real, but it's the broader community, the non-Jewish community, who says, yeah, this is a problem. And then over 90% believe that, most importantly, they believe it's a problem that affects society as a whole. And so all of us are responsible for combating it. So Stephanie, there's an answer, but I, I think there's an answer for the Jewish community. There's an answer for our non-Jewish friends. And and within the community, in the Jewish organizational world, AJC is, is like so many others. Since 10-7, we've pivoted to all of the different places where help is needed. And so what does the Jewish community do? Well, there are a lot of Jewish kids on college campuses who are facing real challenges and administrations that are just all too happy to step aside and let their Jewish students be silenced. So people in the community reach out to us when there are campuses that need that kind of engagement with their university presidents, with their leaders. We work with parents. Again, what can parents do when their kids are facing this in high schools, sometimes in middle schools now? They reach out to AJC and we, we help educate them. We go in, we deal with heads of school, we deal with principals. There's a whole lot depending upon where you are and, and how you're impacted. But the main response to all of this, and I know we talked about how bleak sometimes it feels, but the main response is to recognize that the loud, outrageous protesters who are making all this noise in the streets, they don't represent anywhere close to the majority in our country. They don't represent where most people are. Josh, to your point, they have a hard time telling the difference between Hamas terrorists and the Israeli government that's defending its own people. And given all of that, it's important for us to continue to be proudly who we are. We have a program for high school students, Leaders for Tomorrow. I've spent a lot of time with these kids of late. I mean, it's amazing what you can do when you engage young people. We do it through this program. People can do this individually to help give them the confidence to be strong and resilient and proud Jews. We model that for them. I mean, all of us, that's a really important thing we can do. So there's, and then Jewish employees should make sure that their employers understand this moment and how it's affecting them. They have to make sure that the DEI officers in their company, if they have them, are actually acting not just with passing reference to the Jewish community, but to actually trying to understand them, something that, that we work really hard on. All of that is really important. And then the, the main thing for non-Jews is to be good allies and friends and, and to reach out and ask their coworkers, ask their friends, ask their neighbors who are Jewish just how they're doing, right? Like we would all benefit if more people just came and asked us and we could engage in this conversation so that the 95% of Americans who know this is a problem are actually working on something to make it better and to be allies and to push back against anti-Semitism. Ted Deutsch, fighting the fight in Florida, in New York, in Congress, in the AJC, wherever Jews are in peril, which according to the AJC's new survey is pretty much everywhere. We are so grateful to you and to the entire Fighting Deutsch family for everything. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's really, really great being with you. I and and really grateful at a moment when Jewish pride is so important. The role that this podcast in particular plays in creating community, especially since 10-7, it's really, really important. So kudos to you and, and much appreciation. to the mailbox. Just one letter this week, and I will read it for you. Hey, Unorthodox, longtime listener, first-time writer, albeit anonymously, because, well, you'll see. I work professionally in a Jewish space, so since 10-7, I've been surrounded by Israel-Palestine day in and day out, all the time. It's in the air, and we all care about it. The one thing I've found near impossible to do since then is go to shul. Why? Because every time I've gone, there have been conversations around Israel-Palestine. And yes, it's important to talk about and so on. But sometimes I just want my Friday night or Saturday morning service to be a plain old service. Am I being a bad Jew? What should I do? Signed, Anonymous, because duh. 
So what do you what do you guys think of this one? It's an interesting question because sometimes I feel like uh, when something of this magnitude is happening in the Jewish world or in the world proper, you never want to turn it off. You, you feel like you constantly have to be taking in the latest news, having an opinion, sharing your opinion, discussing what's happening. But I think that also can hold down our, the spiritual side. And I can understand wanting to take a break and check out at times. I totally, I totally get it, Anonymous. Surprise, surprise, my my thoughts are slightly less tolerant. Anonymous, not only not being a bad Jew, but it's the other way around. The rest of the Jews are being bad Jews. By the way, I love the option is, are you a bad Jew or is everyone else a bad Jew? That this- <laughs> no, everyone else, everyone else in your life, Anonymous, is a bad Jew. And here's why. You specifically wrote about wanting your Friday night and Saturday AM services to be just plain old services. You specifically framed it in terms of just feeling kind of fed up with going to show and hearing everything and anything, but, you know, just Torah and davening. And there's like the good old life sustaining, nurturing, absolutely essential pleasure of just praying and show. That is something that I am very sad to say. An overwhelming majority of non-Orthodox shows, even very nice and well-meaning ones, kind of really completely lost the ability to do. You very rarely go somewhere. And even if it's an opinion I completely agree with, I don't need a lecture about the matzav, the situation. I don't need a war update from my rabbi. I don't need, you know, words of moral outreach. I get enough of this. I need Torah. I need davening. I need fellow Jews. I need joy. I need for life to go on because if all life is, is a constant IRL doom scrolling and we do nothing (laughs) but kind of like just be jittery and nervous and, you know, concerned with all the bad news, then really we're not being Jews because this religion is all about, if it's about nothing else, it's about keeping our traditions and our Masorah, our way of life, even or especially in the face of very tough circumstances. And if you can't find any space and time for joy, for tradition, for being with family, for celebrating, for observing Shabbat as it was truly meant to be celebrated as a 25-hour-long taste of the world to come, then you're really just not doing Judaism right. You're really just politicizing and cheapening and flattening it. And that sucks. Leave those bad Jews behind, Anonymous. <laughs> you know, I think about this a lot on, like, a high holiday sermon, right? Where, the like, this is your chance to get, like, your message in, right? So if you're a rabbi, especially on those days when you probably are realistically getting a lot more people than you normally are, people feel like they want to get it in. I'm always just like, I don't necessarily love it but I understand why it's happening. I think on the day-to-day, week-to-week, I do understand this thing of like, I'm actually coming here to like unplug, right? Like I'm coming here to not have the news on my mind. But I do think that for some rabbis, they probably think like, I need to help guide these people, right? Like this is a part of being Jewish today. And I want to offer what I can to sort of help people understand this. So like, I do understand where it comes from, this idea that like, we're hearing a lot of different stuff. I'm a spiritual leader. This is a situation that's that's affecting my... But you know what What offers a lot of uh, of certainty and guidance and wisdom? Uh, the Torah. Ooh, how do you, how do you say that? To- Torah. It's a brand new thing. It's this. It's it's this book. Torah. There are also kind of a few film adaptations, uh, but it's good. How about just do that for two hours out of the week? If that's all you have to go, if you go to shul for only two hours a week, <laughs> make sure the Torah is the book you read. I think it's a great question, and I am curious if other of our listeners have experienced something like this. If they've sort of stayed away from certain spaces particularly synagogues, shuls, temples, because of this, or if they've been drawn to them because of this. So so hit us up, unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Let's keep the conversation going. On February 24th, just two days after this episode airs, the war in Ukraine will have hit the two-year mark. Since then, millions of Ukrainians have fled the country. Some of them have landed here in New York. And the refugees who are children obviously need a place to go to school. We discovered one unexpected school that's making America feel like home for some of these kids. Producer Quinn Waller went out to South Brooklyn to learn more.
я учу хибру, но мне очень нравится, когда... Я не помню, как это правильно называется, но мы там ели такие пончики. Да. I, I am learning Hebrew and I really like Hanukkah because I like the fried donuts and I like the dreidels. <laughs> This is Olya. She's 10 and speaking Ukrainian to me with a translator. She also isn't Jewish, but she's learning Hebrew because she goes to Hebrew Language Academy Charter School, a public charter school in South Brooklyn that teaches Hebrew to all its students. How hard was it to learn Hebrew? <sighs> Hard. But I can say Shalom Ani Yesenia. That means hello, my name is Yesenia. Can top my own. Olya and Yesenia are two of over a hundred students across the network of Hebrew public charter schools that have recently immigrated from Ukraine because of the war with Russia, which this week hits the two-year mark. And while a couple of these Ukrainian students have Jewish roots, the vast majority of them aren't Jewish. But now, they make up approximately 10% of the 1,100 kids at three Hebrew public charter schools in New York City. I was shaken, of course. It took me completely by surprise. And I started to think about every possible way that I could help. Valerie Haitina is a chief administrator at Hebrew Public. For her, the Russian-Ukrainian war hit close to home. And she wanted to do something to help. Cleaning my closets, sending clothes to people who were displaced, medical supplies, fundraisers in the schools. And then in early March, I started to realize that it is only a matter of time until these people will be coming to the United States. Valerie is Ukrainian herself and immigrated after the fall of the Soviet Union when she was 14. When she heard about the war, she realized that she was in a position to do more than just donate. So she reached out to some friends of hers that had fled from Ukraine to Poland. And they said, hey, listen, I'm sure that there are social media groups and Telegram and WhatsApp groups of people who would be coming to the United States. Why don't you let them know that we have this network of schools and there are two schools in Brooklyn and a school in Staten Island that will be thrilled to welcome Ukrainian refugees. Initially, Valerie had to find the right way to explain what Hebrew charters are to the Ukrainian families. Charter schools are a very American concept, as is separation of church and state, which does not exist in Ukraine. It was a bit confusing to explain that, yes, Hebrew Public teaches all its students modern Hebrew, but no, it's not a Jewish school. The parents signed on. Even though the Ukrainian families aren't Jewish, They're happy for their kids to learn another language alongside English. And the kids like it too. So actually I really like it because all teachers are supporting us. They're like making fun lessons. They're turning on like fun videos, fun songs. And I really like it. This is Polina. She's 11. And it's not just the supportive teachers and the fun lessons that she likes. When I learn Hebrew, like, n not all of us, like, not only Ukrainians, like, American kids also don't know really Hebrew. And we, like, in this lesson, we're, like, in the same level. So we are playing in this, in this language. And we, like, when they don't really know Hebrew, I don't really know Hebrew. And we feel, like, feeling like we are in the same level, that we are the same. For some kids, the appeal isn't just that Hebrew levels the playing field. Here's Valerie again. We also found out that for the kids in middle school, many of them never wanted to come to America, right? They were happy with their own environment, and here they are plugged out of their nat natural habitat, brought in here, and they are resisting anything American. Like, we have one student who would not try any American foods, didn't want to learn how to speak English. But if you go to his home, and I've been there, like there is a flag of Ukraine in Israel. And what is his favorite treat? It's bamba. Living in America is obviously a big transition for the kids. There is so many squirrels. <laughs> like actually so many. But how to say that, like, 
Ну, здесь хорошо, но здесь, конечно, трени едут и много крыс. It's really lovely here, but there are a lot of rats in the metro. But it's more than our rodents. The kids are still dealing with the trauma of the life they left behind. Here's Valerie again. Each one of them has adjusted very differently. Leave alone loud noises. The first few days we had younger kids, especially from places like Mariupol and Bucha, who would be afraid to get on the bus. One day we were doing the fire drill test and the alarm went off. The kids fell on the ground. We were not ready to see their reaction. The school does what it can to support this transition. There's a very robust ESL program for the kids to learn English. They provide financial support. And there was even a partnership last year that allowed 28 of their Ukrainian students to attend Jewish day camp for eight weeks for free. They're starting to get back to just being kids. Some still have problems, but most of them are really integrating very nicely. A big part of what has helped the kids adjust and integrate is a program called Pal2U. It's an English tutoring program started by a few teenagers. So this kind of started, we went to this picnic slash get together for these Ukrainian refugees in Prospect Park last year. And we saw that there was a lot of like need for just like connection. This is Sonia. She's 16. She's one of the founders of Pal2U, along with her friend Sabina. But it's not just any tutoring program. Sonia and Sabina, as well as a lot of the other volunteers, are the children of Jewish immigrants from the former Soviet Union. Because our parents are from the former Soviet Union, we've heard stories of how, like, lack of language really, like, made them feel isolated. And so we wanted to help kids, like, break that barrier between other kids. They tutor the kids in English, and what makes that easier is many of these volunteers also speak Ukrainian, or Russian, which is close enough to Ukrainian to get by. But what's really important about this program is that the volunteers take on a kind of big brother or big sister role. And with my student especially, I start, I tried to like push her to read books because like a lot of the time we like read books online in English, like trying to show letters or like identifying things in English, like hat or whatever in the winter. But she was like, I learned this in school. Can we do something else? So we just ended up kind of like talking about her day and like drama. And I told her about <laughs> mine. So it's literally just like, <laughs> she had some boy drama. <laughs> Sometimes they even hang out outside of school. Sonia and Sabina even went to go see the new Little Mermaid movie with a student. And they just talk about all the most important things. Here's Mia, one of the volunteers. I was like, oh, what kind of music do you like? She's like, Taylor Swift. And I love Taylor Swift too. <laughs> but they also bond over Slavic-specific things as well. She was, I was like asking like, oh, like what kind of plate restaurants or things do you like to go to? I was like, finding like McDonald's, Starbucks. She's like, oh, I love this store. It's called Metcost. And it's like this really popular like um, Russian or whatever supermarket in New York City. And that was like, I was really like fun for me to hear. And I was like, wow, like, cause that's just like what I grew up with. And it's really nice to see I guess, like, her assimilating and kind of growing into, like, the culture is here. The kids that I talked to all seem to really like their tutors. Like 12-year-old Timothy. Before he answered any of my questions, he wanted to give a shout-out to his teacher. First of all, I want to say hello to my teacher, Daniel. I really like to uh, be on lessons with you. And Polina, who we heard from earlier, also likes the program. Right now, I know much better about American cult culture, 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 culture. Uh, after after the lessons with my um, teacher, so I really like it. Pal to you is so popular that they actually have a waiting list. They're in the second year of operation, and they have forty pairs of students and volunteers. For Sonia, Sabina, and Mia. Giving back like this feels like a deeply Jewish thing to do, even if those they're giving back to aren't Jewish themselves. Here's Mia. 
one of like a core value of Judaism is just like helping people like tzedakah and it's just like so important to like help others like who are in need the fact that we're like given the opportunity to help them and we're taking it like that's such a mitzvah that we're doing and that's so important even just getting everyone together feels like a reflection of Sabina's Jewish values making the community like the community of volunteers and tutors is just also a huge Jewish value, just like being around people and making a, such a strong bond and giving back at the same time is definitely just like my main, what I take away from Judaism. I think that Valerie put it best. There are many people from my Russian-speaking Jewish community, even those who came from Ukraine, they would ask me, why are you going out of your way to help them? You know, you're Jewish, they're not. Look at the history, look at everything they have done to the Jews. Why are you opening your heart and soul to do whatever you do for them? And um, my rabbi friend uh, from New Haven, Rabbi Michael Farb, when I asked him this question, I said, Rabbi, what do I respond? And he said something that I repeat to everybody. We are helping because we are Jewish, not because they are. Because this is what my tradition teaches me because I want to help people the way I want to be helped. A big thank you to Ina Muntian for translating and to Victoria Anesh for connecting us with Hebrew Public. Looking for a seedless one. Uh-huh. It was crazy. The Beautifully Jewish community is in the midst of a weekly knit-along brought to you in part by Lion Brand Yarns, a fifth-generation family-owned business that is passionate about helping people enjoy the pleasures of working with yarn and committed to creating a more colorful, connected, comforting, and caring world. And we recently invited rapper Kosha Dills into that world. Stephanie talked to him about the music he's been doing post-October 7th. And we even have a cameo from his mom. Have a listen. I want to introduce Rami Evan Esh. You may know him as Kosha Dills. Rami, welcome to the show. I'm excited to be here. Can you tell us about what you're wearing on, on your head before we get to who um, you are? My mom made these. She's made me some famous hats, um, multiple different colors. But this is a first black one, I think. And it's sort of elastic. And, it, and it's, um, you know, she's sending them off to the soldiers. to her hometown in Tivon, where we have a house where she grew up. And she sends them to a woman who sent them to the soldiers in the north because Tivon's close to the north. So she's just making hats. Tell us a little bit. What is Kosha Dills? Who is he? And what kind of music does he do? I've been rapping as Kosha Dills since 2005. A lot of my music, I call it user-friendly rap music that sort of navigates really dark topics in a lighthearted manner. And I think Jews in general, we use sort of lighthearted tactics and comedy to deal with trauma. And a lot of my stuff deals with like these dark depression, you know, addiction. I've been sober 19 and a half years. I come from D1 sports and also addiction, rehabs, multiple arrests throughout my life in my earlier years. And now I've been just really successfully pursuing the kosher dills thing. And because of the name, I was sort of drawn into the Jewish world. And a lot of my content was like early on, just slight references to being Jewish or Israeli. And going forth from there, during every outbreak of a war, I've always responded with some sort of piece of content or a song or a YouTube clip. And now, you know, on October 7th, I've just been making sort of war music, I guess you could say, and war content that puts Israel and the Jews in a good light. And also is, you know, very trying to be as respectful and introspective of, of like navigating our social culture. And so I'm trying to be out there and I stick up for us, I guess, I guess you could say. Something that brings a lot of people in this group together is that after October 7th, we all felt helpless. And something a lot of people wanted to start doing was like creating, right? So whether that's knitting or crocheting or going to some artistic outlet, even if you didn't know what it was for. And then, of course, we all figured out, okay, the hats, let's start really mobilizing on that. 
I imagine for you as an artist as well, there was a need to, in some ways, process your feelings through music. Is that something that you experienced? Yeah, right off the bat, I processed writing songs, you know. The song that I did was Bring the Family Home. That was the first one. And that was, you know, I wanted to create the image of a tough Jew. This, a lot of my branding was like tough Jew, sort of like the bear Jew from Inglorious Bastards or Ray Liotta from Goodfellas. And he was like in that sort of street, street Jew. So I did, I went outside like uh, Yona Schimmel's, like the old Kanish place of like the Lower East Side with like a shofar and was like banging it, like, like, like I was going to hit somebody with it or something. And that, that was sort of like the imagery that I wanted to like sort of display. From Kanye to Amaz, it's all the same. Namaste, synagogue to Amaz, pray he'll pain. I march for BLM, I march for Ukraine. But this time, me and my people in the negative need rain. See, I used to get punched in the face, but now I do the punching. My family heated, cause most of us died in the ovens. We went from what the F we discussing, this shit discussing. Now we hiding from my enemy, children can't eat school lunches. Addicted. I want to speak a little bit about the watermelon song, too. Yes, please, tell us about it. So, you know, the watermelon, obviously, it's a symbol from like Palestinian resistance that when they, I guess at a certain time, they weren't allowed to wave flags, people started using watermelons. And that, you know, was kiboshed after the Oslo Accords. But obviously, it's like, it holds like a historic place. Now, online, people think that, you know, if you have a bunch of Israeli flags, or if you have a bunch of Palestinian flags in the emoji section, that will sort of shadow ban you. So they started using watermelons. So, you know, for a lot of us, like we don't know about each other's history. So, you know, many of the pro-Israel advocates, I would say, you know, we can't just take the watermelon because Israelis love, you know, Avatiyah. So um, another girl that I'm on Wild and Out with, uh, which is the TV show I'm on, she's also Israeli. And so we, we, just, we just created that song one day and shot like a really nice music video, but it's also, the song is like a fun song, but it's like a little nudge, but it's also like kind of, you know, a hundred some days into the war, we're losing our minds. So just need a nice song. Live, laugh, love, not a bunch of watermelons. Like, came across a shorty, she bop. She at the pizzeria, looking like a mama mia. She said she knows self-defense is some Thai chia. Cry my God from Tel Aviv, little Avatia. How come everywhere that I go, all these people put the Avatia in their bio? This cute guy and he said, I want to see it. Then he asked me, hey, what the deal with Avotiach? Hey. And I really think, you know, when I went to Israel, I want to share one thing at Gal Galatz, which is an army radio station, but also like the number one station in the country. I looked up history of like what song was on the charts during the war of like Yom Kippur war. Like, I think it is really interesting to know what songs people are using during war. And I'm just happy to bring a moment of uh, levity to anyone who is a family member or friend of a, of a hostage. And, you know, if they're like, we like the videos. And for me, that's like, that makes me feel so good when I see that, you know, that you're bringing some sort of comedy and stupidity to a completely complex situation. It's actually really nice. So, you know, I, I like to keep making the songs, you know, because people, it makes other people happy. And that's, that works for me. What does your mom think of all this? I know she's here today. I don't know. I never asked her. Let's ask her. Dude, what Hi. did you want to ask me? We just wanted to know what you think of your son making all this amazing music, especially all this Jewish theme music. I think it's amazing. Yeah. He is so talented and he's so full of energy and heart. His videos are wonderful. His songs are wonderful. Yeah. What's your favorite song? Chaverim is one of my favorites. And Bring Them Home, Rami, the last one. Bring the family home. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yo, Rami, I, I'm not in a good time to talk because I'm about to go into the supermarket. I'm standing here outside, basically. So, uh, Kaya, thank you uh, so much. You're the best, you're Kaya. We really appreciate you're it. Welcome. You're welcome. Bye, guys. It was very nice to meet all of you. Bye. Well, Rami, thank you so much for joining us and for everything you're doing, for being a, bit, a tough Jew, an artistic Jew, a talented Jew, and for Thanks. introducing us to your mom, most importantly. Listen, yeah, you know. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, and feel free to reach out to me online, and I'm happy to keep the conversation going. You are at Kosha Dills, K-O-S-H-A-D-I-L-L-Z, across all social media. You're very easy to find. Thank you for joining us.
right, time for some mazel tubs. I'd like to give a Lenten mazel tub to our, our Catholic brethren. Lent is starting. And, you know, in years past, our friends at the Jesuitical podcast from America Magazine have invited us on and asked us to tell them what they should be giving up that year for Lent. I've never liked it because I don't like to be the Jews telling other people what to do and particularly what not to do. Oh, I loved it. I do have to say, I love Ash Wednesday. I love seeing the Catholics coming out on the subway, in the streets, and you're like, it's like wearing a yarmulke, feeling all sorts of good feelings for our our Catholic brethren. I actually texted, I think I mentioned her several weeks in a row, Tablet's religious literacy columnist, Maggie Phillips. She's Catholic, and I texted her, Happy Ash Wednesday. I actually have no idea if that's an appropriate thing to say to you on Ash Wednesday, but I'm thinking of you today. And she says, I'm not sure there is one. I've heard people say have a blessed Lent or make a good Lent, which I like that. That's like a happy and healthy. Make a good Lent. Lent well. Wishing all our Catholic listeners a blessed Lent. A freiliche Lent. Liel, who's your mazel tov for? My mazel tov is to Israel's women's basketball team which last week played against Ireland. The Irish team, probably giving the Belgians a run for their money, refused to shake hands with the Israelis, in response to which the Israeli women trounced them 87 to 57, proving once again that Hashem has an incredible sense of humor. So to these new champions, Mazel Tov. Josh, bring us home. Keeping it in the sports world, I was going to give a, a shout out to Israeli fencer Yuval Freilich, who is presumably not related to Michael Freilich of the new Flemish Alliance Party in Belgium. But Yuval Freilich won a gold medal in the Epey category in Qatar at the Grand Prix last Wednesday. I like the delicious irony of his becoming um, a champion fencer in the home of Hania and Hamas's leadership. I just imagine his uh, flight over there. Excuse me, sir, do you have something that looks like a weapon? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you know this about me, Joshua Molina, but I was a Division One college fencer. I didn't know that. Yeah, I fence foil. It's a very surprising fact because I'm not particularly athletic, but I fence foil. And it was very complicated getting those swords on planes. It makes you very suspicious. So I do feel for Yuval trying to get from Israel to Qatar uh, with all those weapons. Will I be able to see video of you fencing? Is there, can I see that? Okay, how about this? I promise a picture of me fencing in this week's Unorthodox Newsletter. You can subscribe at tabletm.ag slash Unorthodox Newsletter. All right, that's it for this week. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, the former fencer, with Leah Leibovitz and Joshua Molina, who both fence Sabre. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, and Daron Rusque, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo is by Jenny Rosberg. Our theme music is by Golem. And our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. We love to hear from you. Email us at unorthodox at tabamag.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Until next week. Shalom, friends, and on guard.